Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Calcio Podcast. A podcast devoted to Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you once again for listening. On today's episode, we'll start with Napoli's win in the Europa League over Rijeka. But before we do that, I'll tell you a little bit about my relationship with the idea of Maradona. In part two, we'll recap all the other action from outside of Serie A this week. And in part three, we'll preview Napoli's match on Sunday against Roma. So let's start with Napoli's match against Rijeka, which was the ultimate tribute to the late Diego Armando Maradona. Before I get to the match, I do want to say a few words on Maradona and what he meant to me. Unfortunately, I'm in that group of people that never had the pleasure of witnessing Maradona play live. Or if I did, I was too young to remember. He joined the club the year before I was born and left when I was six. 
So my knowledge of Maradona is strictly from what I've read and seen about him. I've watched whatever matches I could find from back then. I've seen countless videos on various different sites, many of which are familiar to all Napoli fans. I've seen a couple of documentaries about him. Funny enough, during the most recent international break, I bought and started reading John Ludden's book that the most popular documentary was based on. From all of that, I've come to learn three things about Maradona. The first and most obvious was an appreciation for why he's widely regarded as the greatest footballer of all time. He could do things with a football that no one else could, and during a time where few players allowed him to do the things he would. Even today's legends view Maradona as a legend. I came across a couple of interesting videos this week. The first was one that was going around on social media, which was Gary Lineker talking about Maradona, and amongst other things, he said that he was the only footballer that he ever wanted to applaud on the pitch. Clive Allen told another great story during the Atalanta-Liverpool match. That one was about a match Maradona played for Tottenham, and he didn't have boots, so he borrowed one of Clive's two pairs. Maradona ended up assisting him on the winning goal, and he still has those boots to this day. Just about everyone who's met him has their story. That's the second thing I've learned about him, which is how much affection so many people have for him. His love for the game and his love for the ball made you love watching him play. He was just on another level. It wasn't just fans who adored him. Some of the best footballers of our time viewed him the same way. Just these past few days, I've seen videos from Fabio Cannavaro and Andrei Shevchenko, and I'm sure there are many more. Maradona will always be a god to the people of Napoli. Much like how most Roman Catholics have a cross or a crucifix somewhere in their house, pretty much every house, every shop, every restaurant in Napoli has a picture of Maradona in it. And it's important to note that that wasn't a title that he asked for, that wasn't the title he wanted. In fact, I don't think he liked being called a god, he thought of himself simply as a footballer. But you can appreciate why Napoli tiny people felt that way about him. In the 80s, there was a north-south divide. Even today, many Italians consider Napoli the dirty underbelly of Italy. There was a lot of poverty in Napoli, so people consider Napoli tiny people dirty. They consider them diseased and so on. The fact that one of the biggest stars in football wanted to play for them was unheard of. Now, Maradona's reputation had taken a bit of a hit at Barcelona, and maybe if that doesn't happen, then he never joins Napoli. But he did come, and in many ways, he was made for that city. He himself grew up in poverty, so he could immediately relate to the people. He had his imperfections, just like they did. He was a survivor, just like they were. But he had a gift, and he chose to share it with them. So he was immediately thought of as a savior. 50,000 people showed up at the San Paolo to greet him before he ever kicked the ball there. When you look back at that classic image of him walking up the steps of the San Paolo, surrounded by cameras there does seem to be something superhuman about him. Now, playing in Napoli is not easy, they put a lot of pressure on him, and even with the weight of the world on his shoulders, he delivered two Scudetti and a UEFA Cup, and that changed the way people looked at Napoli forever, so he means everything to them. Closer to home, I've seen so many videos, so many tributes, so many stories. If you follow Napoli Twitter, you know Rafa and Joey. Their stories really struck a chord with me, and I'm sure there are many, many more just like theirs. But essentially, their stories were about how Maradona brought families together and how much joy they got out of being together and watching him play. And it's hard to not get emotional when you see and hear and read those stories. And those guys learned about Maradona from their fathers, and that's what a legend is. But Maradona is one of those few people that became a legend decades before he passed. The third thing I've learned about Maradona is a little bit about who he was as a person. He was so complex that I don't think anyone will ever understand who he truly was. 
the Caltro guys did a beautiful tribute episode this week, and my contribution to that was about who Maradona was as a person, because you often hear that he was great on the pitch, but not so great off of it, which makes it sound like he was a bad person. Sure, he had his vices, but everybody does. The story that I shared was from Maradona's first season at Napoli. He was asked to participate in a charity tournament to raise funds for a sick child, and even though the club didn't want him to play, he still went, and he brought players fully kitted with him to one of the poorest parts of Napoli. And even in that match, he still scored a beautiful goal. So for me, that story just showed what a caring person he was. So let's get to the match now. I thought the club did an amazing job of honoring Maradona. The San Paolo, which will soon be named the Stadio Diego Armando Maradona San Paolo, was left alit on the night of Maradona's passing. Fans gathered outside of the stadium prior to the match and throughout the match, lighting flares to celebrate and mourn the loss of Maradona in the most fitting of ways. The club changed their logo on social media to be black and white. Maradona banners were displayed throughout the stadium, and one of the digital advertising banners displayed his name throughout the match. During the warm-up, Maradona's favorite warm-up song, Live is Life, was played on the stadium speakers. The most touching moment for me was to see all 11 players come out of the tunnel wearing the Maradona jerseys. Even Alex Meret had a keeper jersey donning Maradona's name and number. Even the commentators honored him. When it came to the starting lineups, instead of reading this starting 11, he read the starting 11 of the Napoli team that won the UEFA Cup over 30 years ago. That was Giuliani, Renica, Ferrara, Corradini, Francini, Alemão, Di Napoli, Fusi, Carnavale, Careca, and the immortal himself, Diego Maradona. And a minute of silence was observed at the start of the match before the crowds outside of the stadium erupted into song. So with that, let's get to the highlights. And now Andrea Petania gets us underway. Now Goulam, I'm sure he'll make changes here, Gattuso at halftime, if it's still goalless. Lucky break here for Piotr Zielinski. Can he make the most of it? He can! Politano turns it in. And finally, Napoli find a way through. And that will just about do it for what has been a fairly uneventful first half. Distinguished by a moment of skill and creativity from Piotr Zielinski. And finished by Matteo Politano. They're still very much in this. Here's Insigne. To pick that diagonal, which he's done supremely well for Lozano. <laughs> Napoli have their second goal. Heaving Lozano created with a wonderful pass by Lorenzo Insigne. They came here to celebrate Diego Maradona. We haven't been treated to a thriller. In fact, Rieka. Very nearly had a consolation, that will do it. On a night with plenty of drama outside the stadium. Celebration and mourning rolled into one. There were two As you heard, Napoli won 2-0 on an own goal and a goal from Chucky Lozano. There's plenty to talk about, but first let's start with the lineups. Rijeka lined up in a 5-4-1 formation with even Nevistic in goal. Nino Galovic lined up at centre-back, Jorge Smolcic played centre-left, and Darko Velkovsky started at centre-right. Napolitan Armando Anastasio played at left-back, and even Tomasek started at right-back. Stepan Lonsar and Adam Nesda Serene played in the centre of the midfield, with Daniel Stefuel on their left and Robert Muric on their right, and Frank Andriasevich played at striker. 
Gattuso made a number of changes to his starting lineup, which was good to see. He still lined up in the 4-2-3-1 with Alex Meret in goal. Kalidou Kalibali and Nikola Maksimovic started at centre-back, which is our usual duo in the Europa League. Surprisingly, Fauzi Gulam got to start at left-back, and Giovanni Di Lorenzo started at right-back. Timoy Bakayoko and Diego Deme, who was named by his father after the great Maradona, started in the double pivot. Piotr Zielinski started in the 10 spot to give Dries Mertens a rest. Elif Elmas started on the left wing to give Lorenzo Insigne a rest. And Matteo Politano started on the right wing with Andrea Petania at striker. So I'll start with a few general comments about the match and then I'll talk about a couple of players. In normal circumstances, I would say this wasn't a very impressive performance, but obviously this match was not played under normal circumstances. It was a very emotional 24 hours prior to the match, and I'm sure that was very draining for all of these players. We also started with a squad that had a lot of rotation, so they wouldn't have played much together, which is why I think Napoli looked very disjointed and out of rhythm. This match played out very similarly to the first meeting. Rijeka had their fair share of chances in the first half hour of the match, mainly on the counterattack. In the first meeting they scored one, whereas in this one they did not. But as the match wore on, and especially when we used our depth off the bench, Napoli took over and dominated play, particularly in the second half. I know this was against Rijeka, but when we brought in Lozano, Insigne, Mertens, Lobotka, and Fabian, we were the far superior side. It's quite the luxury to be able to bring those guys off the bench, four of whom are regular starters. Two of them combined on the second goal, Insigne's assist from midfield was ridiculous and Lozano did really well to receive it and then had the patience to wait for the right moment to take the shot. That patience is a quality of a true striker. Many players panic and rush their shot in that situation because they're anticipating pressure. One of the differences in this match was that Napoli had a lot of chances. Besides the two goals, Napoli had 11 or 12 quality chances. I think just about every Napoli fan wanted either Diego Demme or Lorenzo Insigne to score in this match, and both of them came very close. Demme nearly scored on a volley in the 6th minute, but just missed the far post. Insigne replaced an exhausted Matteo Politano in the 64th minute, and had 3 really good scoring chances. The second, which came in the 90th minute, was the most impressive. It started with a corner kick, which Rijeka cleared. After winning back possession, Napoli completed 26 consecutive passes without a Rijeka player touching the ball, and the last 7 of them were one-touch passes. Other than Lozano and Meret, every Napoli player on the field touched the ball at least once in the build-up. Unfortunately, Nevestich made an excellent save to deny Insigne his goal. Insigne had another glorious chance a few minutes later after Fabian played a gorgeous long ball over the top, but Insigne's left-footed lob missed the far post. It would have been so fitting had he scored with a left-footed lob. Watching this match again, I felt horrible for Insigne. You could see how badly he wanted to score, but it just wasn't meant to be. Speaking of Nevestich, he was excellent in this match. Besides those saves on Insigne, he made a number of other excellent saves, including on Politano in the 27th minute, Di Lorenzo in the 34th minute, and Lobotka in the 91st minute. Nevertheless, it was a comfortable win in the end, and three points that we'll gladly take. I'll close the review with a quick acknowledgement of two players. The first is Piotr Zielinski. It was great to see him get the start in the number 10 spot. That's something a lot of Napoli fans have been waiting to see. We know he's capable of playing there because he plays in that role for Poland, and it's very important that we have someone who can back up Mertens because he's been our only number 10 so far. Especially with Osimhen out, having Zielinski at the 10 spot also frees Mertens to play as the striker, if that's where we want him to play. In fact, I think that's where we'll see him against Roma, but we'll talk more about that in part 3. 
I think Fabian would be excellent in that 10th spot as well, though he and Zielinski play very different styles. Fabian is a better passer, while Zielinski plays more direct, more vertically, and we saw that in this match. On the first goal, Zielinski received the pass and got a bit lucky on the turn on Velkovsky, but then ran straight down Rijeka's throat before playing a ball into a very dangerous area, which is something that has been missing lately, and sure enough, the ball ended up in the back of the goal. The goal was originally given to Politano, which I was happy about because he's been playing so well lately that I want him to keep scoring. Unfortunately, that goal was changed to an own goal. Interestingly enough, it was Anastasio, a guy born in Napoli and whose first name is Armando, that was credited with an own goal. The other player that I think deserves a shout is Fauzi Gulam. He got his first start since September 29th, 2019 and played really well. He made a few really impressive tackles. He can deliver a decent cross, which is something we seem to struggle with. We saw him taking corner kicks in this match as well. He made a few runs down the left wing, even though he doesn't quite have the pace that he once had after his various knee injuries. As the match wore on, you could see Gulam's confidence growing. He was playing backheel passes. And while I don't think we're going to see Gulam start too many matches in Serie A, I think he showed with this performance that he's definitely a serviceable player. Now we know that we can start him in the Europa League if we guarantee ourselves a place in the knockout stage with an extra match to play. We can also use him against the bottom of the table teams when we know we're going to have most of the ball, much like in this match. And we will definitely be able to use him as a substitute in matches where we're up by a couple of goals. So that's my review of Napoli's emotional win over Rijeka. Next, we'll recap all the other action that happened outside of Serie A this past week. We'll cover all the action happening outside of Serie A this week, including the Champions League, the Europa League, the Coppa Italia, Serie B, and Napoli Femminile. Starting with the Champions League, Juventus beat Ferenc Faro's 2-1 on goals from Cristiano Ronaldo and Alvaro Morata, but it didn't come easy. Paolo Dybala got his first start in almost a month. He came close to scoring in the 15th minute, but was otherwise pretty quiet. Matthias De Ligt looked very good at the back once again. Franz Varos actually scored first, Tokmak Nguyen jumped on the ball, Nguyen did all the work before laying off to Mirto Uzzini, who did a mini version of the Ronaldo celebration against Ronaldo himself after scoring the goal. That was the first goal Juventus have ever conceded to a Hungarian side at home. Only minutes later, Ronaldo equalized with a powerful left-footed shot to the bottom corner, but he didn't do his usual celebration. 
Federico Bernardeschi had a good match as well, his second in a row now, which Juventini will be happy to see. He hit the upright in the 60th minute after Dennis Debuj got a fingertip on the ball. Debuj made a number of excellent saves in this match, but he couldn't keep up Morata's header in the 92nd minute, which was probably one of the easier shots to stop. Juventus probably weren't expecting to use so many starters off the bench, but in the end, they got their win. Lazio beat Zenit 3-1 on a brace by Ciro Immobile and a goal from Marco Parolo. Immobile scored a beautiful goal to open the scoring only three minutes into the match. 35-year-old Parolo scored his first ever Champions League goal and it was from 25 yards out. Artem Ziuba scored his first Champions League goal in over a year to put Zenit within one. Yaukin Correa was excellent in this match. He set up a number of chances that they didn't convert. Then early in the second half, he played a gorgeous long ball to pick out Manuel Lazzari's run on the right wing. Lazzari cut back to Immobile, who showed his experience and patience to draw the foul in the box. Immobile converted the penalty to restore the two-goal lead. Lazio had a bit of a scare when Francesco Acerbi went down holding his shoulder, but he managed to play out the match. Zenit probably got away with one late in the match for a foul by Yaroslav Rakitsky on Vedat Murici in the box, but it wasn't given. Then in the 85th minute, Mikhail Kurzakov made an excellent save to deny Murici his first goal for Lazio. Finally, Zenit deserve a lot of credit for competing for the entire 90 minutes. They could have put their heads down after that second Immobile goal, but they kept on playing, which made this a very entertaining match. Meanwhile, Inter suffered a very disappointing 2-0 loss to what was effectively Real Madrid's B-team. Real Madrid dominated this match. Eden Hazard opened the scoring from the penalty spot. Around the half-hour mark, Arturo Vidal went down in the box, but Anthony Taylor was well-positioned and did not give the penalty. Inter's players, especially Vidal, felt the foul was similar to the one called against Inter on the Real penalty. Vidal, who was brought in for his experience, got in the face of Taylor to get a yellow, and then, instead of walking away, he got even more in the face of Taylor and was shown a second yellow in 30 seconds. That really hurt Inter, but even before the red, Real Madrid were looking like the better side. They created a number of excellent scoring opportunities. Rodrigo added a second goal about 30 seconds after coming off the bench to put that match away. Finally, Atalanta upset Liverpool 2-0 at the Anfield with goals from Josip Ilicic and Robin Gozins. This was a dominant performance from Atalanta and was the closest we've seen to Atalanta's run last season. The same can be said of Ilicic, who had his best match since returning from his layoff last season. Raymo Freuler showed how important he is to this midfield. He outmuscled Giorgio Wijnaldum to win possession to start the attack on the first goal. That goal finished with a gorgeous cross from Papu Gomez, who was my man of the match. And Atalanta's wing play, which is so important to their game, was much better with Gozins and Hatabor back in the squad. Liverpool didn't look their sharpest, Atalanta were very much in control, putting lots of pressure, dominating possession, spreading the play from side to side and involving those wingbacks. You could see Liverpool's inexperience at centre-back with all the injuries they have, and Liverpool did not record a single shot on target and had only one shot in total. So with two matches to play in the group stage, Juventus have secured their place in the knockout stage. That's huge for them. I know there's still motivation to finish top of the group to improve the draw, but that really comes down to the final match against Barcelona. That means Juventus can rest some of their players against Dinamo Kiev and focus on Serie A, which is bad for the rest of Serie A. Inter, on the other hand, are in very bad shape sitting in last place in Group B. They're not mathematically eliminated, but they are going to need a lot of help to advance. Lazio are sitting comfortably in second place in Group F, but they're not in the clear just yet. If Lazio lose to Dortmund, which wouldn't be unheard of, and if Club Rouge beat Zenit, which is also expected, then there would be a showdown on the final match day of the group stage to determine which of Lazio and Club Bruges would advance. Finally, Atalanta are in a similar position in Group D. 
They're tied with Ajax on points, but Ajax have the tiebreaker. However, Ajax have Liverpool next and Atalanta have Mithiland, so Atalanta will likely need a draw against Ajax to advance to the knockout stage. In the Europa League, Roma beat Cluj 2-0. This wasn't a terribly entertaining match. Neither side had many chances in the first half. In fact, I think each of them only had one chance. Gabriel Debuya missed an open header about midway through the half, and Borja Mayoral had his shot stopped around the half-hour mark. Roma looked much better in the second half, especially after bringing on some of their regular starters. One of those substitutes was Jordan Vertu, who came on at the start of the second half and was involved in both of Roma's goals. The first was a cross that somehow made it through everyone and got into the back of the goal. It did take a slight touch off the Cluj player, and so it was ruled an own goal. The second was from the penalty spot, which Vertu took. Edin Dzeko came on in the 64th minute, which was his first action since recovering from COVID. We knew he would make an appearance to get a few minutes under his legs ahead of the Napoli match, and a few Roma youngsters made appearances as well. Tommaso Milanese came on in the 76th minute, and Filippo Trippi came on in the 84th minute. In the other match, Milan drew Lille 1-1. Milan should have opened the scoring in the 24th minute on the counter-attack. Jens-Petter Haug had anti Rebic wide open in front of the goal, but he wasn't able to get the ball past Jose Font. Milan did eventually score the first goal after Sandro Tonali played a gorgeous long through ball to Antti Rebic. Rebic calmly laid off a perfectly weighted ball for Samu Castilleu to finish into the empty goal. Gijo Donnarumma made some excellent saves in this match, especially on Luis Alejao just before the break, but he wasn't able to stop Jonathan Bamba from equalizing in the 65th minute. Canadian Jonathan David made a nice layoff on that goal. He's had a tough time scoring goals since joining Lille as the replacement for Victor Osimhen, so it was good to see him get involved in a goal. Neither side did much after that, and I think the draw was a fair result. So the Italian teams are in decent shape with two match days remaining in the group stage. Roma ensured that they will advance from Group A with their win over Cluj, which, like Juventus in Champions League, means they can focus their attention on Serie A in the next few weeks. With the win, Napoli moved to the top of Group F after Real Sociedad drew with Alkmaar. Both of those teams are on 7 points, only 2 points back in Napoli, so this group is still up for grabs. And Milan are in 2nd in Group H, 1 point behind Lille, and 1 point ahead of Sparta Prague. So that's how the Italian clubs did in Europe this week. Meanwhile, a number of Serie A clubs were playing their 4th round matches of the Coppa Italia. Cagliari beat Verona 2-1, Ricardo Sotil scored just before the final whistle to win this match, so they advance to the quarterfinals where they will play Atalanta. Sotil is another player that probably makes a move to a bigger club soon. Verona had an excellent second half, but Guglielmo Vicario stood on his head to keep Cagliari alive. Parma beat Cosenza 2-1, so they will play against Lazio next. Empoli forfeited their match against Brescia. The club issued a statement saying that they've had a few positive tests and therefore they will forfeit the match so as to limit the spread of the virus and not risk the cancellation of Serie B. So that means Brescia will play in Napoli in the quarterfinals. Spezia beat Bologna 4-2 with two goals in extra time. At 2-2, Bologna had a chance to win the match with a penalty kick after Rodrigo Palacio was fouled by keeper Titas Krapikas. For some reason, Krapikas was only shown a yellow even though he was the last man back. And then Krapikas made an excellent save on Musa Barrow to send the match to extra time. Spezia will play Roma in the next round. Fiorentina beat Udinese 1-0 with a goal in the 112th minute. 20-year-old Topo Montiel scored only 5 minutes after coming on the pitch. So Fiorentina move on to play Inter. Torino beat Virtus Antella 2-0 with goals from Simone Zaza and Federico Bonazzoli only 2 minutes apart in the second half. So they will go on to play Milan. Spal beat Monza 2-0 in the only remaining battle of Serie B, so Spal will play Sassuolo. 
And Genoa won the Derby della Lanterna 3-1. Gianluca Scamacca scored another brace, so he now has four goals and two appearances in the Coppa Italia, just like last season. Genoa will play Juventus in the quarterfinals. So just to recap, Cagliari play Atalanta, Parma play Lazio, Brescia play Napoli, Spezia play Roma, Fiorentina play Inter, Torino play Milan, Spal play Sassuolo, and Genoa play Juventus. Moving on, match day 8 of Serie B was played last weekend. We always recap the action in the second episode of the week. In the match of the week, Lecce smashed Rajana 7-1. Massimo Coda continued his torrid start to the season. He scored a tripleta to bring his goal tally to 7. I felt bad for Rajana keeper Giacomo Venturi. Lecce could not seem to miss. They were literally picking corners left and right. Mirko Caretta scored a brace to help Cosenza to a 2-0 win over Frosinone. Both keepers were excellent in that match. Brescia drew Venezia 2-2, Dimitri Bizzoli scored a beautiful volley to open the scoring, Francesco Forte responded with goals on either side of the break to give Venezia the lead, but Brescia were all over Venezia in the final stages of the match and equalized in the 6th minute of added time. Cittadella drew Empoli 2-2, Empoli keeper Alberto Brignoli let in an absolute howler on the opening goal of the match, Amadeo Benedetti put in a cross on a free kick. Brignoli came out to challenge, then panicked and backtracked, which allowed the ball to bounce over him and into the side of the goal. Like in the Brescia-Venezia match, Empoli responded with two goals to take the lead, and then Cittadella equalized in added time. Pordenone drew Monza 1-1. Pordenone scored in the opening minute of the match and had a number of chances to score a second in the first half, but just couldn't finish. That ultimately cost them three points. Monza were much better in the second half, though they were also quite fortunate. Monza appeared to be offside on the equalizer, but the offside wasn't called. Spal beat Pescara 2-0. Sebastiano Esposito scored a late goal in that one. Ascoli drew Antella 1-1, but this was a very good result for Ascoli, who picked up two red cards early in the second half. Despite going down two men, Ascoli found the late equalizer to steal a point. Regina were defeated 2-1 by Pisa. Regina scored first, but Lorenzo Crisi-Teg picked up a second yellow in the first minute of the second half. That opened the door for Pisa, who scored twice in the final five minutes of the half to get the win. Finally, Salernitana beat Cremonese 2-1. Like Pordenone, Cremonese scored in the opening minute of the match, but didn't score again after that. Salernitana were the better team, though, and fully deserved the three points. So after eight rounds, the table is starting to spread out a little bit. Empoli and Salernitana are tied at the top of the table, followed by Lecce, Spal, Venezia, Chievo, Frosinone, and Cittadella in the playoff spots. Cremonese, Pescara, and Antella are in the relegation spots, and Vicenza and Ascoli are in the play-out spots. We'll close part two with Napoli Femminile's Coppa Italia match against Sassuolo. Unfortunately, this match was also not available where I am, so I'm relying on the club's match report. Giuseppe Marino lined up his ladies in a 4-2-3-1 with Emeline Mangi in goal. With Paola Di Marino and Federica Di Criscio on the bench, Mariah Cameron made her first start alongside Alexandra Hune at centre-back. Elisabetta Olivero played at left-back and Federica Cafrata played at right-back. Sarah Huchetta and Emma Erico played in the double pivot. And the front four consisted of Eleonora Goldini, Isota Noki, Jacinta, and Evi Popadinova. Napoli raced out of the gate, scoring the opening goal only four minutes into the match. Jacinta stole the ball from Martina Lenzini before crossing to Goldini. She beat Sassuolo keeper Dide Lemmi. Mangi made a couple of important saves in the first half, but she wasn't able to stop Benedetta Brignoli from scoring the equalizer in the 29th minute. In the second half, Marino replaced Jacinta with Sofia Janssen and switched to a 4-3-3, but it didn't work. Neither team were able to score again after that. Napoli came very close to stealing the victory and added time. Lemmy made a miraculous save 
to keep out Hushet's header, so this match finished in a draw. Even though we finished tied with Sassuolo on 4 points, they had the better goal differential, so Sassuolo advanced to the knockout stage. This has been the story of our season. We keep coming close to getting results, but fall just short. So that will do for part 2. In part 3, we'll preview the big derby on Sunday. In the final part, we'll preview the Derby del Sole on Sunday. Even though the season is still young, it's been a while since this match has carried so much significance. Roma are in fine form with 5 wins and 2 draws since losing their opening match of the season on the table to Hellas Verona. In fact, other than that loss to Verona, Roma have not lost a single match in Serie A since Napoli beat them 2-1 on match day 30 of last season. That would be a run of 13 wins and 4 draws if you count that Verona match as a draw which is how it actually finished. What's more impressive is that Roma have done it recently without their star striker Edin Dzeko who was out with coronavirus. The key to Roma's success was the change in formation from the 4-2-3-1 to the 3-4-2-1 which Paolo Fonseca deserves a lot of credit for. Suddenly players like Leonardo Spinazzola and Henrik Mkhitaryan are having excellent seasons and I think a lot of that has to do with this change. And I must admit, I'm very surprised to see Roma having so much success. They were late to the transfer window because of the purchase of the club in the summer by the Friedkin Group. The club was so deep in debt that there wasn't much they could do in the market. Even if they sold a player like Jekyll, the proceeds would primarily be used to pay down debt. They didn't have a sporting director and still don't, so the transfer market was being managed by CEO Guido Fienga and son of the owner Ryan Friedkin with the help of two intermediaries in Mario Giuffrida and Paolo Busardo. And even then, Fienga got suspended for the final week of the window. There were rumors at the start of the season that the new owners wanted a new manager which would have been a complete disaster but those might have just been rumors. Then they started the season with that loss on the table but since then Roma have been very good. Despite not having a sporting director they actually fared quite well in the transfer market. Pedro has been excellent since joining and at the very last minute and maybe even a few minutes late Roma managed to re-sign Chris Smalling. Sometimes the best deals are the ones you don't make and that certainly has been the case with Edin Dzeko. With a win, Roma would have a chance to move level with Milan, but only if Milan lose to Fiorentina. Meanwhile, a Napoli win would pull Napoli level with Roma on 17 points. So with that, let's get to the starting lineups. As I mentioned, Fonseca lines up in a 3-4-2-1. Antonio Mirante has taken over for Paolo Lopez as the starting keeper. There is some uncertainty about the back three. The preferred starters are some combination of Chris Smalling, Marash Kumbula, Gianluca Mancini, and Roger Ibanez. Kumbula is out with COVID and Smalling is out while he continues to recover from food poisoning. Mancini and Ibanez both had minor muscle injuries but Fonseca confirmed in his pre-match conference that they are both fit to play. Brian Cristante has done a good job of deputizing with all these players missing. Cristante, Ibanez and Mancini can all play on either side but if I had to guess I'd say Ibanez starts in the middle, Mancini on the left and Cristante on the right. Spinazzola will start at left wing back and Rick Karsdorp will start at right wing back. Fonseca also confirmed that Lorenzo Pellegrini will play in this match, so he will start alongside Jordan Vertu in the middle of the field. 
and Pedro and Mkhitaryan will play in front of them and behind Zeko at striker. I'm guessing that Gattuso will use the 4-2-3-1 once again. As of Saturday, David Ospina continues to do special training, so I think we'll see Alex Meret start again in goal. He hasn't started three consecutive matches since late December, early January against Parma, Sassuolo, and Inter in Serie A. We should see Kalidou Koulibaly and Kostas Manolas at centre-back. That's our usual duo in Serie A. I think we'll see Mario Rui at left-back. I know Fauzi Goulan played well against Rijeka, but I don't think that put him ahead of Mario Rui. In fact, I think he played so that Rui would be well-rested for this match. And Giovanni Di Lorenzo will most likely start at right back. With Tiamui Bakayoko on a red card, I think Diego Demme will start in the double pivot with Fabian Ruiz. The alternative to Demme is Stanislav Lobotka, but Demme plays with a bit more fire, so I think he's better suited for a derby. Lorenzo Insigne will start on the left wing, and I think we'll see Matteo Politano again on the right wing. Even though he looked exhausted after playing 64 minutes against Rijeka, he seems to be the preferred starter at the moment and deservedly so but I do expect him to be replaced by Lozano at some point in the second half. The middle of the attack is arguably the toughest spot to predict. I don't think we'll see Gattuso play three wingers again like we did against Milan. I think Mertens definitely plays just on the basis of his experience in such a big match. The question then becomes, where does he play in the 10 spot behind Patania or at the striker in front of Zielinski? And I ultimately landed on Zielinski playing in the 10 spot and therefore Mertens plays as striker. The head official for this match is Marco Di Bello, his linesmen are Alberto Tagoni and Daniele Bondini, Gianluca Manganiello is the fourth official, and Gianpaolo Calvarese is on the VAR assisted by Giorgio Peretti. For my prediction, I'm going to go with a 2-1 win for Napoli, but I'm not confident in this prediction at all. I genuinely believe this match can go either way, but I'll give the goals to Mertens and Insigne for Napoli and Dzeko for Roma. I was on the Chiesa di Totti around the Romaverse podcast this week, and we talked about some of the keys to the game as well as some of the key matchups, and I thought I'd share that here as well. I had three keys to the game. The first is we cannot concede the first goal. As we saw against Milan, our opponents have figured out that if they sit back and defend, we really struggle to score, particularly with Osman not likely to be in the squad. The second is we need to do better at defending the counterattack because Roma have one of the most devastating counterattacks in the league. And the third is that we need to find a way to break the lines. We need to get into those spaces and pass the ball quickly to create goal-scoring opportunities. This has been a big problem lately. Sure, we created many chances against Rijeka, but Roma is a much better side. They're more akin to Milan, who we didn't create many chances against. Roma have a lot of pace in their back three, so we won't be able to outrun them. We need to be able to beat them with our passing. For those reasons, I think Zielinski is going to be very important for us. He may not be the best defender, but he has the pace and the work rate to get back and help defend the counter. Sometimes just having an extra body in the way makes a big difference. He's also able to get between the lines because of his direct style of play, as we saw against Rijeka. There are two key matchups I'll be looking out for. The first is Koulibaly versus Dzeko. This is another tough matchup for Koulibaly after having to defend Ibrahimovic, but Dzeko is dangerous in a different way. Sometimes he drops very deep into the midfield. I'm concerned about Koulibaly getting pulled out of position and then either Pedro or Mkhitaryan making the run in behind, and I'm not particularly confident in either Mario Rui or Manolas covering for Koulibaly. That's where our holding midfielder, whether it's Diego Demme or Stanislav Lobotka, will be very important. The other matchup I'll be watching is Spinazzola against Di Lorenzo, and it's not so much that matchup that concerns me, but rather what will happen if Di Lorenzo gets caught out. Again, as we saw against Milan, we did not defend well when Di Lorenzo gets caught joining the attack. Just like against Antti Rebic and Jens Peter Haug, if Manolas gets stuck 1v1 with Spinazzola, 
were in big trouble. But at the end of the day, I think this match is slightly more important for us than it is for Roma, and I'm hoping the players are motivated by the passing of Maradona and win this one for him. So that's my preview of Napoli-Roma. That will also do it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with your friends and give us a 5-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you need to get a hold of us, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti 5, or you can find the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at ForzaNapoliPod. We'll talk to you again soon to review this match and to preview our next match in the Europa League, but until then, I'm Joe Fischetti, Forza Napoli sempre! Granger, for the ones who get it done.